Father, we thank you for today. Thank you that has already been mentioned. It may be uh, chilly in the, in the sanctuary today, uh, but we've got a room full of warm hearts. The Holy Spirit is here. He is moving in us. He is working on our hearts, and we're grateful for all these things. We're grateful for you. We're grateful that you are with us every step uh, of, for the rest of our lives, giving us the, the conviction and the comfort and the peace and the joy that we so desperately need. Lord, thank you for reconciling us to yourself through the death and resurrection of your son, that we may be fellow inheritors uh, with him. We have so much to be grateful for. We pray that your spirit would go forth, work in our hearts as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody who has any knowledge about gardening or orchards or anything, we, we all know about the benefits of pruning on trees and bushes and even plants like tomato plants. Uh, some of you may grow something like, you, uh, you try your hand at tomatoes and that's really about as far as you go. Uh, but you know that uh, it's a good idea to even plant, uh, prune tomato plants as well, both for all of these plants' health and to encourage more fruit and vegetable production. Uh, but there are a couple of non-traditional pruning methods that are primarily for visual appearance, appearances, uh, both having their roots in ancient Rome. The first one is one we're all well acquainted with, and that's the art of topiary pruning. You can see here, these are some pretty wild topiary shapes here, uh, which is the method of uh, pruning bushes such as boxwood or yew into shapes, sometimes into some pretty um, uh, cr you know, crazy ones as we see here. Uh, this, the second pruning technique we may or may not have heard about is the method known as espalier. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's French, espalier. Anybody heard of this? Okay, Michelle, very good. The rest of you are going to learn something this morning. Okay. It describes the act of training a tree to grow along and up a wall or a fence. This method reached its peak of popularity in France during the colonial years of America, uh, with many in the American colonies, such as George Washington, also practicing it. It fell out of popularity sometime after that, but it's starting to come back as you can see here, for the practical means of being able to have fruit trees in small spaces. Jesus refers to the ancient method of pruning, as we'll begin to take a look at this morning. What connection does Jesus make to the life of his disciples, including us today? Why does he make this connection, and for what purpose? And how does this all directly impact our lives as followers of Jesus today? We left the Gospel of John, Jesus and his disciples, a couple of weeks ago at the end of chapter 14. And at the end of the last verse in that chapter, Jesus says, get up, let us go from here. And there are then three more chapters following that verse where Jesus gives more instruction, teaching, and the famous high priestly prayer before the next section of action happens at the start of chapter 18. So are the words Jesus gives in chapters 15, 16, and 17 still given in the upper room and verse 
uh, chapter 14, verse 31, is merely the beginning of Jesus transitioning the disciples to moving on to the Garden of Gethsemane? Or do they, in fact, all get up at this point, start making their way to the Garden, and chapters 15, 16, and 17 are given to them on the way there? Bible scholars differ on this, and I'm sure other preachers would disagree with me on this as well, but most likely chapter 14, verse 31, is the first physical transition verse in the next sequence of events. At and immediately after chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus and his disciples wrap up their meal, may have cleaned up, and all left the upper room where they were gathered to eat and observe the Passover meal. What Jesus says in chapters 15, 16, and 17 are all said to the disciples as they are traveling through the streets of Jerusalem on their way out of the city. The next geographical indication we have of where Jesus and his disciples are is John 18, 1. So the very next verse after those three chapters end. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went away with his disciples across the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden which he entered with his disciples. This garden, of course, is the Garden of Gethsemane. You can see here on the map, again, last time I showed a map, I said those who are sitting up front are now glad they sat up front. Uh, <laughs> uh, so this is a, a general map of uh, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the orange, this all around here, this was the walls of Jerusalem when Jesus was walking through it. This is expanded on later. Whoops. There we go. So we don't know where Jesus is in Jerusalem, where he, where he spent the Passover with his disciples. But the Garden of Gethsemane is over here. So somewhere along the way, they, they went through the streets of Jerusalem and eventually made their way outside the city to Gethsemane. This, if those of you who are sitting closer, you can read here, Kidron Valley. This is the Kidron Valley here. So if we line it up with Scripture. They passed over across the Kidron Valley uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane there. Again, we don't know where in the city Jesus and his disciples observed Passover, uh, but wherever they were, they eventually made their way out of the city around uh, to the right here, and as uh, chapter 18, verse 1 tells us, passed across the Kidron Valley and ended up in the Garden of Gethsemane. But for now, chapters 15, which we're starting this morning, 16 and 17 probably all take place as Jesus and his disciples are making their way through the city. So as this morning's passage begins, chapter 15, over these next few chapters, why I went through that is we can imagine and picture Jesus saying these words as he and his disciples are at night working, working their way through the streets of Jerusalem. So, with all of that in mind, and as you're picturing this, turn to John chapter 15, if you brought your Bible with you. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also turn to John chapter 15. We're going to be picking up in verse 1. Or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. Chapter 15, verse 1. As Jesus and his disciples are making their way through the streets of Jerusalem at night, Jesus turns to them and says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of verse 2, there's a lot of symbolism in verse 1. As noted by biblical scholarship as a whole, this is the last of Jesus' seven I am statements 
in the Gospel of John. This one that we just read is the last of Jesus's uh, using imagery, uh, seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Not only are all seven of these clearly references to God's name for himself, to Moses through the burning bush in Exodus 4, they also take Jesus's obvious claims of deity for himself and connect them further to specific concepts. The first statement is in John 6 when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The fulfillment of the manna the Israelites ate in the wilderness and a reference to him uh, being our true spiritual sustenance. The second is in John chapters 8 and 9 when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. If you remember, when we cover those chapters, this would be during the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles, surrounded by giant lit menorahs in the temple complex, fulfilling all the connections to the light, wisdom, and order, and creation of God, and then bringing the physical light of sight to a blind man. The third statement is found in John chapter 10 when Jesus says, I am the door to the sheep pen, a clear declaration that it is only through him that a person can be a part of the flock of God. That third one flows directly into the fourth statement, also in John 10, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd uh, who leads God's flock of sheep to pristine water and green pasture but who also, along with the Father, preserves every single one of those sheep. And no one can snatch any of them out of either one of their hands. That the, the, fifth the fifth I am statement is immediately after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, and then says, I am the resurrection and the life meaning that it is only through faith in Jesus that anyone is given the Holy Spirit of new spiritual life, and only through Jesus that anyone would be resurrected unto eternal life when he partially returns at the rapture. The sixth I am statement is the famous line, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Once again, a clear declaration that it is not through any good works, or an all roads lead to heaven belief, or that anyone simply automatically gets into heaven if they're generally a good person, but only through the repentance of sin and a full surrender to Jesus and Jesus alone that gives eternity with God to look forward to. And then the seventh and final one in connection to metaphorical illustration is the one we just read in 15.1. I am the true vine. Now, Jesus also makes the statement, I am, in John 8, when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And all his Jewish audience knew exactly the claim to deity Jesus was making, enough to try to stone him to death right then and there. And the last I am answer is what will come to eventually in John 18. When the soldiers who come to arrest Jesus ask him if he's Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus responds with, I am. And then anybody familiar with the story knows that the declaration of deity is so powerful, it all hurls them backwards onto the ground. Well, let's come back to the final metaphorical I am statement Jesus makes in John 
purposely recorded as the seventh one, a number we all know is one of completion and perfection. As noted by biblical scholarship, all throughout the Old Testament, God calls Israel his choice vine. Israel was supposed to bear fruit for God's glory, but they woefully failed over and over and over again. One of the more familiar passages referencing this is Isaiah 5. Let me sing now for my beloved, a song of my beloved about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he also carved out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it, as any agriculturalist would do, to produce good grapes. But lo and behold, it produced only worthless ones. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his delightful plant. So he waited for justice, the good fruit of justice, but behold, there was only the rotten fruit of bloodshed. He longed for the good fruit of righteousness, but behold, all he got was the rotten fruit of a cry for help. Instead of the fruits of justice and righteousness and of being a light to the surrounding Gentile nations, Israel only produced bloodshed, injustice, and prostituted themselves with all the pagan gods of the surrounding Gentile nations. Once again, where Israel pathetically failed time and time again, Jesus was the true fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be. In this case, where Israel failed miserably to be the choice grapevine that God planted, intending, expecting to harvest good fruit, Jesus is the true vine, the fulfillment of God's intention and expectation. In John 15, 1, the same illustration from the Old Testament, most notably from Isaiah, is carried over. God the Father is still that same vine dresser and vineyard owner. The main difference now is that to be part of that Father's grapevine is not to identify as being a part of Israel and being Jewish. To be a part of the Father's grapevine, one must be not only connected to Jesus as the true vine, but producing fruit as a result of that connection. That will directly flow into verse 2. But before we get to that in a second, remember what we've been talking about lately, overall, in this section of John. Jesus already uh, stated point blank in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He declares that point blank. Not to go on living our lives the way we want to, or according to what we think, sounds nice or loving, but by seeking through the Holy Spirit's empowerment to keep and obey God's commands for righteous living and what he defines as what love is. That goes hand in hand with the answer to the follow-up question. Why did Jesus save the ones God chose before the foundations of the world were laid? Why did he do it? What was the purpose of it? 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And in these whom he predestined, he also called. In these whom he called, he also justified. In these whom he justified, he also glorified. We were saved to bring God glory and to be conformed to the image and likeness of his Son. In order to be a part of God's choice vine, we must first be connected to the true vine. And then to show that we're truly connected to that true vine, as we've seen elsewhere, we must bear fruit in conformity to the image and likeness of the true vine. You can't be connected to a vine, a grapevine, and think you can produce some other kind of fruit or whatever fruit you think you're supposed to be producing or is societally acceptable. You produce fruit that is in conformity to the vine that you're connected to. We don't get to decide what that fruit is or what it looks like or how relevant or irrelevant to today's societal standards it is. In complete opposition to those now relatively well-known commercials featured during the Super Bowl or other times that portray the half gospel, which is really a false gospel of Jesus as he gets us, Jesus does not conform to our understanding or likability or desire for who Jesus should be, especially in today's culture. We are to conform to Jesus and the true Jesus as described and explained in God's word. The fruit we bear then is not what we think it should be or sounds nice or is palatable to this culture. The fruit we bear, again, must be in conformity to the image and likeness of the vine we are connected to. He is the true vine and dictates what fruit we must bear as being connected to him. We have no say. We don't have any right to say, well, I think Jesus would do this. Or, well, I don't think Jesus would do that. We already know what Jesus has said and done. And we already know what God commands and expects of us in his word. All we're to do is to simply bear the fruit he dictates us to bear and has already commanded us in his word to bear. Everybody with me? Okay. With all that established, let's dive into that next verse, verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. There are differing views on the point Jesus is making here. But the most biblical one within the immediate context of this is that those who are in me but do not bear fruit claimed to be his but never were. Claimed to be his, but never were. Most theologically conservative Bible scholars understand this as not being the same 
as Paul's use of the term in Christ. For example, in therefore if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old thing has passed away, behold, new things have come. We understand that very clearly as being saved, as, as, as being chosen, saved, connected to the true vine, bearing fruit in conformity to that true vine. As we'll see later on, the branches that do not bear fruit in what Jesus is talking about in John 15 are gathered up and thrown into the fire. A reference that Jesus makes over and over again to the unrepentant and unregenerate who never surrender to him as king. We see throughout the New Testament that God chooses who he will save, draws those people to himself based on Jesus' death and resurrection, and seals them for good with the Holy Spirit. Those who he grafts onto the true vine will bear fruit for his glory. So taken with everything else in God's word, those branches that don't bear fruit and are really just dead are ones who appear like viable branches. They say all the right things. They do all the right things. They claim they're Christians. They claim they're Jesus' disciples. They claim they love Jesus. But their lack of fruit in accordance with the true vine and God's word screams otherwise. If you are truly connected to the true vine, you'll be able to look back on your life. A year ago, a few years ago, 5, 10, 20, 50 years ago, and you'll be able to see the Holy Spirit having changed you and having grown these fruits of the Spirit in you. If you look back on your life, and nothing has really changed in your faith. Nothing has really changed in terms of the fruits of the Spirit being grown in you. And you have to have a brutally honest conversation with God and perhaps actually repent of your sin and actually turn to Jesus and complete surrender to him as king. Now, those who are truly connected to the true vine and do bear fruit in conformity to that true vine and his word, I'm sorry to break it to you, we're not just sitting pretty left to be content where we are cruising through life. No, God and his sovereignty is still the vine dresser. We got to remember that. It's exactly what Jesus says in verse 2. He's still the vine dresser and he still has every right and exercises every right to prune us in order to bear better and more fruit. It all, including the process of pruning, comes back to God's sovereignty over our lives. It always comes back to God's sovereignty over our lives. Not only are the branches that somewhat appear to be viable but are really dead, chopped off to be gathered up and thrown into the fire, but God also prunes the good branches. Now before we get into the where the rubber meets the road aspect, of that, let's cover verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Remember who Jesus is speaking with now. He's speaking with his disciples, the 11 that are still left. 
The reason I wanted to cover verse 3 next is that it, it confirms everything we've already talked about so far this morning. As one biblical scholar points out, there is a huge similarity between the Greek word for prune, or kathairo, and clean, or katharos. In fact, the two words are related. Jesus notes that the 11 disciples that remained with him were already clean. Why? Because they trusted in Jesus' message and word about himself and his salvation. That's the first step. That cleanness is then furthered by continual pruning. One must be clean first, though. It's not the so-called fruit or behavior or good works that makes one clean. It's the initial cleanness given through trusting Jesus, his death and resurrection, and his gospel message of salvation that leads to the growth of fruit and subsequent pruning that leads to even more and even better fruit. The pruning process, in turn, also makes us more and more spiritually clean through the transformation of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to get too hung up on the physical understanding of this, but I looked up the reasons for pruning grapevines, which can tell us some spiritual things about this process as well. Firstly, a cultivator will prune grapevines in the dormant state, when the vine is not actively growing and setting fruit. You may feel like you are not in a growing state and are rather in a dormant state. You're seeking God, and nothing seems to be going anywhere in your life or moving forward the way you want it to. You may very well be in a state of pruning, where God is pruning out of your life bad habits, apathy, negative influencing people, ensnaring temptations and sins, or things that you think are good, but are really not glorifying to nor advancing God's kingdom. These things must be pruned off in order to keep growing and bearing fruit. In prayer, look for what God may be pruning out of your life in this season where you may feel dormant. Surrender them to him. Walk away from them and walk towards how God wants you to be living and what he wants you to be doing, even if it's not the direction you saw yourself going in. But, and this is why I didn't want to get too hung up on the physical understanding of this, even not in a dormant state. A healthy grapevine needs to be continually pruned in order to stay healthy. The more you spiritually grow as a healthy follower of Christ, the more things in your life the Holy Spirit will reveal to you that he's pruning off. A grapevine will also naturally produce more shoots and buds than will be productive when it comes to fruit, so a cultivator will prune off unnecessary shoots and buds that will take away from the more productive shoots and buds that will become fruit. Similar to what we just talked about, there may be things in your life that you think are good, but are really just distracting you. And they're really just taking time away from the kingdom work that God really wants you to be doing. Are there things in your life that you're devoting a lot of time to, but they're either spreading you too thin, 
or they're taking a lot of time away from spending time with God, taking a lot of time away from being with God's people regularly, and taking a lot of time away from doing the work he's called each of us to. Maybe there's something that has been abruptly ripped out of your life that you're really upset about. Maybe, just maybe, that was God pruning it off of you so that you could devote more of your time to what he wants you to be doing. We have to remember that God the Father is the vine dresser. We're just the vine. We have no say in what he prunes, where he prunes it. He's the vine dresser. He will prune out of and off of our lives whatever he deems necessary, whatever he deems needs to be removed. There will be seasons of more pruning, and there will be seasons of less pruning. And let me ask you this. I know we're still speaking in metaphorical terms, but when a plant is being pruned, do you think the plant ever enjoys that? Ever enjoys the pruning process? No! I would most certainly think not. Branches are literally being chopped off. It hurts. Every instance of God pruning something off of us is going to hurt, brothers and sisters. It's not going to tickle. It's not going to feel nice. It's going to hurt. It's never going to be enjoyable, but it's always required in order for God to produce more of his fruit in us and through us. Being pruned is a continual state for the follower of Jesus. Don't be shocked by that. Don't be surprised by that. We should never be surprised about God pruning something out of our lives. And God accomplishes his processes of pruning through trials, challenges, and tribulations. It's how he breaks us of self-reliance and moves us to complete reliance upon him and his strength. As we bring up time and time again, the Apostle James explains it this way. Consider it all joy. And we, can, we know now why we should consider it all joy. My brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, that means you're being pruned. That means something good is happening to you. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we, of course, know that that does not mean that we'll be perfect morally this side of heaven, but that more so the, the, the last part, lacking in nothing. We'll always have the peace God wants us to have, the joy God wants us to have, the comfort God wants us to have, even as he's pruning us, even in the midst of these trials. The trials God uses in our lives to prune off things that are not glorifying to him and to be able to grow more and better fruit in us are not enjoyable. But they can and should be joyful, as we just read. Not enjoyable, but should be joyful. How and why? 
because we know that the trials we're going through is simply God pruning us, teaching us, convicting us, and growing more and better fruit in us. It's all ultimately good, and it's all ultimately for our good. So when we go through times of trials and challenges, we may initially get angry, frustrated, and upset. But instead of staying in a state of anger, frustration, and being upset, we should look beyond those feelings and look for what God may be pruning off of us. As the vine dresser, God's pruning will always happen to us. It will always happen to us, regardless of what we think or how we feel about it. And always remember, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. If we weren't being pruned by God, think of it that way. If we were not being pruned by God, what does that mean? We're one of those dead branches that's just going to be chopped off and was never supposed to be there in the first place. As God's word also tells us, as a good father, God disciplines us and prunes us. You can believe it because he loves us. So again, if we're not being pruned, we have a much bigger problem to worry about. So instead of fighting, that's our natural human inclination, right? Instead of fighting seasons of pruning, running away from seasons of pruning, let's thank God for seasons of pruning and look for what he's actively pruning off of us, knowing that he's using it for our growth and to grow more and better fruit in us. As God prunes each of us individually, guess what else is happening? He's pruning our church as a whole, as the body of Christ, bringing all of us more and more into conformity with the image and likeness of Jesus. God created us for his glory. God chose us for his glory. God saved us for his glory, and God is pruning us for his glory. That's why I said earlier that everything, including this process of pruning, all comes back to God's sovereignty over our lives. Ephesians chapter 1, in him we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with the plan of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in the Christ would be to the praise of his glory. It's all connected to and founded on and built on his purpose, his will, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these tough words, but at the same time encouraging words for us. That as we go through trials and challenges, uh, instead of being upset and frustrated about those things, we can be, look beyond our feelings and look for what you're pruning off of us. And Lord, let us ever be in a 